Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I want men to know that it's everything. That it doesn't make them weak to love. It makes them human beings to love. It doesn't just look like romantic love. It's all kinds of love. And at the end of the day, before we love anybody else or anything else, we have to love ourselves. Because if we don't love ourselves, there's no way you can love anything else. And the only way you can love yourself is to hold space and compassion for yourself and to recognize that you are more than just a physical body, that you are, a, that you have a soul, that you are a spiritual being having a physical experience. So welcome to Time to Talk with Alex Holmes. My name is Alex Holmes and I host this podcast weekly where I speak to guests for insights into all things health and wellness. We chat to mental health practitioners, therapists, psychologists, holistic practitioners, healers, authors, leaders from all walks of life, experts in their fields about all things mental health and wellness. Every conversation on Time to Talk is a calling card to an issue that is not readily talked about, but also with a guest who has something insightful to share, or with a view to make us the best people possible. So buckle up, let's get into the show. There are two ways that you can help support the podcast grow to be the best possible show that it could be. First one is free. Head over to Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. Throw down a five-star rating, a long, long, in-depth review, or as short as you want it to be, and share with your friends and family and get them involved in the conversations. Interact with me on Instagram over by Alex Holmes on there. Drop me an email at alex at alexholmes.co. Happy to have conversations with you guys. I really appreciate you all for listening. But the second one is more to help you guys see the show grow in the way that it could possibly do. And it takes a lot of effort to create these shows. So I've got a steady platform, which is very similar to Patreon, but it's over at steadyhq.com forward slash Alex Holmes. And you can join me on there with one of the plans from as little as six pounds per month. You can get access to private episodes, access to live shows, access to the video content that will be coming out with regards to the podcast very shortly and soon. So there's going to be so much exclusive content available for you guys there. So if you head over to steadyhq.com forward slash Alex Holmes, you can subscribe and be a part of a growing community of people who want to see this podcast grow and really have those impactful mental health conversations that we hope can change the way that we all look at each other and help us be the best possible people that we can be. That's all. Let's get back to the show. This week's conversation is an amazing chat with Justin Baldoni. Justin Baldoni, if you don't know who he is, this is just the description straight from the blurb of his book, Man Enough, Undefining My Masculinity. And this is who Justin Baldoni is. Justin Baldoni is a devoted husband, father of two, and Baha'i. We'll get into that on the show, so stay tuned. He's an actor, director, producer, and the co-founder and co-chair of both Wayfarer Studios and the Wayfarer Foundation. So over the last 10 years, Justin has been on a journey to explore masculinity and reimagine what it means to be a man, what it means to be human in the world today. He has spoken about his journey with masculinity in his wildly popular TED Talk, Undefining My Masculinity, and in his digital series, Man Enough, as well as on college campuses across the USA. 
Hey. Now, obviously, Justin and I have loads to talk about because Time to Talk has very similar content. I'm looking at it from a, an emotionality, deep vulnerability perspective. He's looking at masculinity from his deep lived perspectives as well and um he has some amazing chapters in here he talks about his privilege as a white man he talks about being a dad talks about the crisis of what it means to be really brave um he talks about love and we go into we get into love quite a lot in this episode as well so amazing and if you guys are jane the virgin fans then welcome welcome to the episode and let's i have a chat with him about what it means to be a man today so Let's get on with the show. And next week, stay tuned for Richard and I. We'll be talking on Talk More about masculinity. And we'll be unpacking so much to do with my book, to do with Justin's book, and all the BS that is going on today. So let's go and have a listen to the show. All right. So I have so much to ask you. Oh, let's get into it. I have so much to ask you. So man enough, undefining my masculinity. And this it kind of comes off the back of your, your TED talk, off of your kind of your disruptive TV series, which is um, Man Enough. You kind of have a round table with guys and you kind of yeah. get talking about uh, things. It's a, quite an old, old in the sense of the ever-changing things millennially. But mm-hmm. um, so well, I mean, it was. Two, it was three years, three years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah 2018, yeah. It's a dinosaur. Um, <laughs> so just tell me about the journey the journey for writing man enough what that what was it like getting everything down on paper and um kind of articulating these stories um to kind of to know that they're going to be back out into the world now um what is what was that like getting that all down uh terrible <laughs> um it was really hard um you said like you know getting it all down one of the things i feel is like oh my god it's not all down there's so much left it's one of the hard parts about a book is like, you know, I'm holding it now. I'm looking at it. Uh, I'm like, you have all this stuff in here. You've written all these pages and yet you're like, wait, but I just scratched the surface. I have so much more to say. Yeah. My thoughts or my feelings have changed on a lot of this stuff already. Like, I, you know, it's just, um, I mean, not the big things, but like little things. And there's things that I wish I would have added in there, but it's too late, right? There's deadlines and publishers yeah. and all kinds of stuff. Um, for the most part, it was really challenging because I didn't know what kind of book I wanted to write. I knew what it was going to be called. I knew what it was going to be about for the most part, but I didn't know how to do it because I don't consider myself an expert. Mm. I'm not a, I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm not a professor of gender studies. I'm just a dude Mm -hmm. that um, has had a unique life experience sitting in positions of power and privilege Mm. and also feeling the need to challenge, um, the system that mm. puts me in power and gives me privilege. And I didn't know how to do it because I was like, how, you know, understanding a lot of my followers are women, you know, they follow me. Let's be honest because of the way that I look, maybe least that's what okay. it, it, <laughs> maybe. it seems to get reinforced a lot of times. Unfortunately, it's something that I'm fighting against. Uh, okay. Something that I struggle with personally, um, you know, because of the character I play on TV and various things. And then there's, you know, it's been a it's been a big challenge to figure out. Well, how do I reach the men? Um, and and what I decided to do was to just be really, really honest. And the one thing I know about being a man is that we learn from other men. You know, masculinity is so performative and put on, and we it's taught. It's taught to us in schools. It's taught to us on the playground of life. Um, and we learn from other boys and. We learn from other men. And I was hoping that if I was willing to kind of take all the armor off and show the truth, the ugliness, the brokenness, the vulnerability, the insecurity, all of it, all the things that I believe that all men feel, but never share, Mm -hmm. then that would be the best way to tell this story. But that required me going all in, required me talking about shit that I've never talked about not even with my wife, with my parents, with my sister. It required me doing kind of an accounting of my life and mm-hmm. a lot of the situations I've been in. And, you know, so we, we took, like, we, we kind of took these ideas 
and distilled them down to, you know, very reductive, simple versions of them. And then I looked for stories in my life that, that led to, you know, as an example, you know, if I'm talking about body image or if I'm talking about sexuality or pornography or insecurities in that way in comparison or confidence, whatever it is, I was like, all right, well, this is my stuff. And the hope is that like, I don't know, man, I hope my hope, the hope is, is that men will see themselves and that women, um, if women do pick up the book and there seems to be a lot of women who are looking forward to reading it, if women yeah. do pick it up, they can have an insight into the male psyche, even though it's not going to be all men. Um, it'll be, a, I think, a good portion of men, regardless of our the color of our skin or our socioeconomic status or, you know, what privileges we've been born into will resonate in some capacity with um, the book because at the end of the day, it's the patriarchy that's creating it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's a little bit of it. It's, 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 it was a really tough one to write. I wanted to quit multiple times. I, yeah. It's ironic that I wrote a book called man enough yet didn't and don't feel man enough to have written it. Yeah. You know, I, I empathize and I really understand everything you've just said there. And because, you know, having written just, I've just written mine and it's published now and it's taking so long to write it. And then you are, you, I struggled through it. I was in therapy and I was like, oh my God, like all this stuff that you're dredging up because mine is very much about emotionality yeah. and um, about the, about the emotions we don't share as men, the things that we mm -hmm. like, you know, and um, having these conversations and so everything you said, I'm like, this is everything that I've been, I've been feeling, like, right? Writing your book. Through, writing my book and all the way through. And, it, and because, it's a very normal thing, Alex, because I, yeah. I've learned this from other author, authors too. Mm. You know, I was really grateful to become friends with Glennon Doyle actually yeah. in the process. And she made me feel so much better. <laughs> she talks about how much she hates writing. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, if the queen feels that way, then not, I mean, okay, I feel better. Yeah, so many people are like, okay, so when is the next book? I'm like, the f the first book is barely out, and it took me like a whole nine months to write this. Like I was giving birth to this child. Yeah, it's like it's like how we ask, you know, women or like new parents who just gave birth. All right, when's the next one? It's like give them a break for God's it, it sake. Breathe, <laughs> let it exist let in the world. Breathe. She just pushed a baby out of her body. Yeah. Like <laughs> give it give it a beat. So you in this book. You speak around so many kind of pivotal topics of what it means to be a man today. But what was it like growing up for you? Growing up for me. You know, the first thought that comes to mind is pain. You know, I had a really, I had such a privileged upbringing. And yet at the same time, I have a lot of pain around it. And it's a weird feeling because I was one of the lucky ones. Two, two parents that adore me, that love me, that gave me everything that I could have ever wanted. I was raised in a you know middle class family that acted like we were upper class, which is one of the problems. Um, but you know, my childhood, I I was in a lot of pain. I remember just feeling really lonely and isolated, and I really had a hard time with my identity and and. Um, you know, I, I so badly wanted to be one of the guys, yet never quite fit in. I, I, so I had so many more girlfriends than I did guy friends, but that also felt very lonely because I liked, speaking of your book, I liked to talk. I liked to share my emotions and my feelings. And I enjoyed spending hours on the phone with my girlfriends. And, and then at the same time, so desperately wanted to be liked included by the guys so i was just kind of always um performing i was trying to be different people in different situations um and i and i struggled with my you know i struggled with my parents because i always felt like they weren't being fully honest with me which as it turns out they weren't they were definitely withholding the truth and the truth that i'm referring to was really their flaws you know they were you know they were they thought that parenting was you know, that they should be perfect and not let me into the things that um, are wrong or, you know, the struggles that they have. And if I wish they would have done that because I, I would have made a lot 
less mistakes in my life. And so, yeah, what comes to mind is like pain and also some shame around the fact that like, man, I was so damn lucky. And yet it's still, I still have a lot of pain around it. And, and I have to also embrace that and say that that's okay because the world will tell me that I don't have any right to feel, you know, the way that I feel about my childhood or my youth, that I should be lucky, right? That I had this and this and this and this. Sometimes I think that having things is also a challenge in itself, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it was that. And also there was amazing moments and gratitude, but I actually have a hard time remembering a lot of my childhood. My daughter sometimes asks me, five and a half years old, she asked me to tell me stories about my childhood and I find myself stuck. I'm like, what? oh no, what's, I can't, I can't remember that much. And luckily in writing the book, stuff would just come out and I'd remember something and I'd put it in the book. Um, but I think I probably have, I have some extra work to do around my childhood to like drudge up yeah. a lot of these memories. I had conversations. I don't know if you know, um, Dr. Nicola Perra, the holistic psychologist on no, I don't. Instagram. She's, she has written a book called um, How to Do the Work. And it's like an amazing mm-hmm. book around just her journey as a clinical psychologist and the kind of stuff that she puts out on Instagram. She speaks a lot to the healing moments and whatnot. And I spoke to her and I just asked her about like, why don't we remember parts of our childhood? And um, and it was so interesting because it's like we we block out certain parts. We block out certain, yeah. parts, certain moments. So when people are then asking you, um, oh, what were you like? What was this like? What was that like? What was your childhood like? And I know, I, I think personally, I've, my friend asked me this recently and, I, and I've got quite a good recall. Unfortunately, all of my memory is surrounded around death and kind of like it's at, at pivotal moments. Interesting, right? It's like pivotal the extreme moments. moments. Right. So the extreme moments are the bits that I remember. And then I'm just piecing all the things together to try and figure out the timeline. What happened so in my, between? Yeah, what happened in between? Did you and, lose someone uh, early on, like someone really important to you? So yeah, like I lost my um, my aunt, um, very early, my grandmother, the earliest, but then my aunt pretty when I was around, you know, when you're at that age around 10, 11, mm-hmm. so you're kind of aware that death happens, but you don't really expect yeah. it to happen, but then it happens and then all these things. And then you see your family grieving for a long time. So it's... Um, that happened quite early, and that did that that created a huge shift in my awareness and my understanding of of life and what life is. And ever since then, it was like then it was with my granddad thereafter, and then it was just kind of this slow thing of like as people age, they die, or necessarily as they age, but people get sick and people get ill, and um, these are just kind of the the little ways of life. And um, one of the things I've been really looking at and looking into is just kind of the way that men grieve in comparisons to say women mm. because of the there's this weird accent I don't know if you found this and I want to know what you think but um just like there's this weird acceptance of men being allowed to express emotion at a funeral in some cultures in some places um but then there's also this overall the mourning side of stuff like really kind of grieving like a parent or a loved one it it just manifests different in men. I don't know whether you've seen that, whether you've seen a lot of your male friends or family go into themselves and you've got to try and prize them out a little bit. It's interesting. You know, as I said earlier, there's stuff I didn't get to write about that I wish I did. And grieving was one of the things that I was thinking as I was saying that grieving, you know, I didn't, I didn't touch on male grieving and, um, you know, I have early experiences as well. You know, I think from like, 18 to 23 i felt like everybody i loved was like getting sick or dying and then of course i for the last 10 years i've been making this documentary series called my last days where i've been spending time and documenting the stories of amazing people with terminal illnesses and helping tell their stories and so i've been and i've surrounded myself intentionally almost with so much death but early on I really struggled with that grieving because there's no space for it. There's definitely no space for it if you're young, if you're a boy. You know, I remember, and it's so funny to talk about memories, just in talking about this, I remember when I was when I was 14, a uh, freshman in high school, uh, was when we had a we had a bunch of kids die that year. Whether it be there was one suicide, there was a few car accidents. Uh-huh. I remember um I remember being 14 and uh 
and a, a good friend of my sister was killed in a car accident and she had an older brother who was a junior mm-hmm. um and i was i was on the track team with the girl her name was emily who uh who passed away and i remember her brother was not very popular he was just a regular you know he's just kind of a regular kid he was a little bit She's got a little bit of a stoner, maybe. I don't know. He just wasn't like the most popular kid. But right after she died, he became like the most popular kid in school. And I remember like him showing up and just being totally fine. And everybody just looking at him and being like drawn to him. And I remember being so confused. I was like, wait, why did this happen? Like, so his sister died. Now everybody's just like treating him like a god. And I don't see him mourning. Like I don't, he was his baby sister. I remember that being a moment where I was really confused about what it meant to be a a man or a boy and grieve. Like, you know, and and so much of it, so much of it in high school is we don't know what to do with these feelings. Mm -hmm. We don't know what to do with these emotions. And then by the end of that year, I think we'd lost four people. And, and I, um, and then the other thing is that freshman year, I lost a girl in my class who was, you know, I was a little bit of a misfit because I, I was trying to find myself and I didn't have a lot of friends. And there was a girl that I wanted to go to a dance with, but we both didn't have any, um, we both didn't really have a ton of friends. She was kind of like, a, I don't know, goth would be kind of the word now, but she was just yeah. a sweet girl. Her name was Ruth. <laughs> and she also died in a car accident. Oh no. And I remember, and we didn't, we weren't like great friends, but we were friends and I remember that being the first time that I just could not keep my stuff together. And we had a, her dad came to class, so into one of our classes. And we sat in a circle and we shared and nobody shared anything. Like, and I just remember just vomiting out like all of these things and just like not even being able to breathe and just sobbing. And I didn't even know her that well. It was like, I was grieving so much, but nobody else was saying anything. And I like went and I hugged her dad and I was like, I'm so sorry. And and I just, it was like one of the first moments where I just was like, oh my God, I have so much. I'm feeling so much. There's no place to share it. It's like no socially acceptable place to share it, except thank God that her dad came to the school and said, like, if anyone wants to say anything, this is what happens. Came to our class. But aside from that, then you're supposed to be over it. Like the socially acceptable thing for us, man, is like, oh, then we're over it, right? You've had your yeah, crime. We're done. Yeah. You're done. And that was one thing I just wish I would have put in the book is what are the spaces for us men to grieve? What are the spaces? Like, what's the timeline? It's almost like we as men are like, we're given a timeline. It's like, okay, this person died. You can be sad for this long. And then it's time to grow up, you know, put on your big boy pants, grow some balls. And then like, you know, let's move on. But that's not the way that, that that pain works, as you know. No. That's not the way that loss works. No. And we so often forget that six months down the line, eight months down the line, a year later, that's when it's even harder because everybody reaches out to you right beforehand. Yeah. But the memory, the the pain, that's when it kicks in. And by that point, we, we leave men alone on an island. Yeah. And then they should just be fine. And then they're shamed for still feeling. Yeah. I put in, in in my book because there's a whole bit about grief in there. But there's a um I can't wait to read I, it. Yeah. I've I always said that there's it's like what you've just said, six months down the line. It's a series of firsts, because you've had a series of lasts. Your last yeah. birthday spent with them, your last anniversary, your last hug, your last everything with them. And then you've got a series of firsts, the first birthday without them, the first if you I don't depending on who you've lost, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, Easter, or whatever. So those are the moments where I feel like that's where we need people to show up. Yeah. Because they're the places, they're the places where we kind of hold each other and kind of hold each other up. But how do we show up if we don't ask for it, right? How do they how do they show up if we don't if we don't ask? And that's the part that we've we haven't been trained to do is right. to say what we need. We as men are not taught to ask for what we need. Mm-hmm. We're taught to ask for what we think is socially permittable to ask for, yeah. right? What's socially acceptable for us to ask for? Like, okay, we can ask for raises. <laughs> you know, we ask for sex, mm-hmm. maybe. We expect yeah. it. We ask for these things, but like, we don't ask for help. 
We don't ask for a hug when we need it. Yeah. Like we, we don't even know how it's like, a, it's like trying to speak Chinese and never, you know, never even hearing the language. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, the other part of that, that you brought up that I think is so interesting that we have to talk about is also there's different types of grieving. There's the grieving of loss as it relates to death. But there's then the grieving of relationships. Right. And coming to an end. I yeah. would say more men face that on a daily basis, like the loss of someone, the grieving of, oh man, they screwed something up and the woman left or it just didn't work out. And then they're, and they don't know what to do with themselves. And then you have this toxic behavior where we tell other men, like, you know, well, the best way to get over somebody is to get on top of somebody. <laughs> right? And all types of things. And all we're doing is just like, we're numbing ourselves. I spoke to one of my friends, Ben, last week about substance abuse and how this kind of manifests in men and their mental health because they said they want to dull the pain. They want to dull, they want to kind of detach themselves from feeling and knowing all of that stuff about themselves. They want to really move out of that space. And in what you've just said there, when I was researching, writing the book, it never got into the book because obviously... Um, you can only because you can only put so much in. Brother. I get so it. In. I yeah. get it, man. But I was really concerned about men who go through divorce mm-hmm. and who lose up. Like, why people? Why they're divorcing? Notwithstanding, I don't know not about that situation, but it's more about what happens after. Yeah. And you know, the typical in a typical situation, the man loses his his marriage, his family, and. Yeah you know, he's then isolated. And then there's a there's this kind of step away from the friendships that they had when they were married and all of these different things. There's the stigma of the divorced man and all of that. And what I found is that there was a study, I have to pull it, pull it out somewhere. Um, and it's like, a lot of men, they go into themselves. They start to go into substance abuse, start to drink, they start to take drugs, they start yeah, to um, have, yeah, addiction. They start to have like, um, meaningless gratuitous sex and they just kind of are just whirling around and they feel the loneliest that they've ever felt but they don't yeah. speak about it it's like what you said there's no um, and this is why I'm so um, I'm really here for empowering these kind of conversations that we're having but also to have men to have nurturing friendships which is why it was so amazing to kind of watch what you what you were doing with Man Enough when you guys were around mm-hmm. the table and I think one of Oh, I forgot who it was. Prince, yeah, yeah. He said he never had many friends there, but you said that you know you'd take all your friends, you'd go to go one place, and then you then you'd be vulnerable in the space where you all are out of a different space. But and then Prince said, you know, he doesn't really have many friends around him that can that can he can talk about that. It's so funny because I just reached out. I just reached out to Prince like a few days ago. All right, just to yeah. reach out and be like, my man, how are you? How's your heart? Yeah, yeah this is what I mean. Um, and and I was like, and I sat down. And I thought to myself. Do I? And I said, yeah, of course, I, I do. I do have friends around me, but I'm, I've been really looking into how we can foster like nurturing friendships as men. It's hard. Encouraging us to be emotional, encouraging us to be open. It's hard because even, even those of us that are doing this work, again, I just wrote a book about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I cannot escape the prison that I oftentimes put myself in as a man. It's very easy to get to allow ourselves to get caught up in the hustle and the work and the providing and the and the service to the world and the you know all of the stuff that we do that we're told that we should do as men um, and not take care of my emotional needs, not give myself what I need emotionally, and one of those things being surrounding myself with friends, talking. It's be, and it, it's like it's the it's it's easier to do that hard work of literally working hard than it is to do the heart work of reaching out and saying I need I need someone I need I got to talk to somebody I'm a, I'm about I'm about to fucking lose my mind mm-hmm. and um and that's uh, that's just the reality of it we're like it's we have years and years and years of socialization I'm 37 so I have what 30 years of being told that that's not okay. That I have to unlearn, and it doesn't happen like that. I want everyone to know that, especially any men who are listening. You are not going to wake up one morning and just suddenly feel like you have no fear around being vulnerable, or it's just never going to happen. It's like I, I love, I, I got into cold plunging and and uh, you know ice baths and therapy like that. I love and, that. And the reason why is because I hate it so much, mm. and it's a metaphor and. 
there's not a morning or a day that that goes by where I like don't fear that. Even a cold shower at the end of my shower, I have to talk myself into it every single day. It'll it's always going to be uncomfortable for me, no matter how much my body my body adapts to it. I'm I'm never going to feel good in an ice bath. I'm going to feel mm. good after an ice bath. And it's the same thing with male friendships and, and what do we do when we're grieving and what do these men do when they go through a divorce, how we numb ourselves? Well, who do we talk to when we're numbing ourselves and we can't get out? The only way we're going to get out of it is through community. Yeah. We're human beings. We, we thrive in community. We thrive. Like we have these feelings we feel, but they, we need to allow ourselves to feel and then they need to come out. And when they come out, they need to go somewhere mm-hmm. and they can't just go to the women in our lives, especially men who don't have those women, yeah. right? We have to be able to share them with other men. And if we don't, hurting ourselves. And then we numb ourselves more and then we feel more pain and we try to not feel the pain. And it's this cyclical, cyclical cycle that oftentimes and for, for far too many men ends in suicide. Yeah. And that's got to stop. Yeah. And you, everything you've said, I'm just like, yes, it's just beautiful because it took me a long time to find them, to find the nurturing men to be around that I can kind of lean on. And, I, and, you know, you know, so many times because women have been socialized to be more emotionally aware and in community. Um, when, when men are out there, it's this, it's this lone wolf kind of idea, idea. The greatest um, myth of masculinity, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's one it's one of those things, and that's amazing just to be able to have those nurturing relationships and understanding around. I I got to read this to you real quick, Alex. Yeah, if you're going to relate to this, so um, go on, go on. my my friends at a call to men just posted this. It's oh, a, just a, okay. It's did you see it this morning? No, go on. So it's a retweet. Um, a guy named Eric Edzili said, "Men's facade of strength is a weakness, while women's permission to express weakness is a strength." Right? And it's that exact same thing. It's like how women have been socialized to be in community and to express their weakness is the literal strength. That is the strength. But yet we as men have this facade of strength, this like this bullshit idea that we're strong. Um, when in reality, you know, it's the women. It's so funny you said a call to men because I was just about to bring up a quote from Ted Bunch. And Ted, my man. Yeah, because he I, was on the yeah, I had him on the show last year, and he um he said something to me. I think he he had this he made this huge shift in me, this huge paradigm shift in me uh, in our conversation. But one of the things he said was that we often use homosexuality as a as as men to shame other men into their behavior. Exactly, and I found that super super profound, just because when we delved into that that piece and really understanding um you know if you don't do x you're this if you don't do this you're that if you hold your hands like this and in your book you said that about you know if a guy says to see your nails and you don't and you hold it yeah listen to all those things exactly did you have that experience i had that experience i had that no way somebody i remember at school um somebody said to me oh can i see your nails and i held my hands like i i turned palm up and squeeze it just just naturally just did that yeah he's like oh i was just checking to see if you'd done it the other way the, the other way which is palms down um as if you were getting a manicure and he's like yeah because you say it just shows how feminine you are and whatnot and i was just in my head i was like that's wow. crazy like what's going on so this happened to me at uh, 11 or 12 years old in this small town in Oregon, this small town of 2,000 people, in this school of 150 people, that happened to me. And here you are in the UK. And, and that exact same. And how does this happen? Like, no like, idea where that came from. Like, think about where this comes from. Mm. Like, who decided that? Who does, who do, like, and, and it's so, it's so wrong. <laughs> and, but to this day, and I don't know if you have this from that experience that you have. When I cut my nails, I think about it. Even I, though I know for a fact that being gay doesn't make you less of a man. Absolutely not. No. I can still cut my finger. And I have that 12-year-old boy who did it the wrong way. Oh, okay. See? The wrong way, whatever that yeah. is. By the way, some of the most manly men I know today 
in their 30s get manicures. I so, absolutely do. Right? But, but back <laughs> then, like, yeah. you know, I, I put it out like this and they all made fun of me. You know what's worse is also the girls did too. There was girls there. And again, women have also been socialized, socialized to have internal misogyny. You know, Bell Hooks talks a lot about this. Yeah. And will to change. So yeah. that's days with but you. But Ted, but amazing. We really have to look at the language we've been, mm -hmm. we've been socialized with as boys. And, and we don't realize, um, especially as we become teenagers and young men and men, Mm. that we've been we've been using words and um and weaponizing them and using both genders and sexuality as a way to uh oppress somebody and to make someone feel less than so what is that what are we actually saying then about those genders and people with those sexualities like what are we actually you know what are we saying so from a very early age i'm i'm taught that a woman is less than i'm taught that that a girl is synonymous with weak I remember when I was doing research for my TED talk, I, I had Googled just for fun. I'm like, what does the internet say is masculine and feminine? And one of the things that blew my mind is that in music, feminine is considered a weak beat. So you have a masculine strong and a feminine weak. Again, who decides these things? And ingrained then you have in our the, language. Yeah. Ingrained in our language to the point where it's not even an issue with Google. And it's and then of course then we associate someone being gay to being less than and then God the worst thing we could be as young boys is to be called gay because that's the biggest insult right at one point it was being called a chicken right remember Back to the Future um, <laughs> but but it's like if you call someone gay it's I mean it's it's degrading so then here you are you have these boys these young men who grow up like they can never they can never be come out. It's never going to be okay because they're going to disown their gender. They've been told that they're less than, or they're, or they're, they're not even human for so long. And, and my my man, you're at an intersection, right? So even as a, as a black man, you've had so many of these experiences that I haven't had, um, that I've witnessed people in my people in my life, you know, say terrible derogatory things um, to black folks in the same way that we do it to girls and we do it to you know. To um, queer people. To, to queer people. So again, it's like this. It, it's we, we're not. We don't pay attention to our language, and uh, and that ends up staying with us our entire lives. So no wonder you grow up, and you have a hard time understanding what true equality looks like because you've been brainwashed to believe that women are women and gay folks are less than anyways. I think that one of the amazing things about the book is the fact that you actually have a, a chapter dedicated to privilege. And being privileged enough. The chapter on being privileged enough is something that I, it was a, it was a great bit to see because I've never heard men speak about that real nuance of being a white man, but like specifically and how that kind of, and how that shows up in the masculinity and the race conversation and where that intersects as well. And because, you know, just for the nature of it, it's just usually the idea of just being, um, we kind of skirt around that and look at like all oh, the vulnerability side and the confidence side and da 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 da. But we don't look at the at that, the privilege side, no. whether you are, um, you know, whether you're heterosexual and, you know, in the face of queer people, and then you are white in the face of um, black and brown people, you know? So it's a very, it was very like um, enlightening to kind of read that chapter and understand, but what did you, how, how, did, how did you get there? What was that like for you to kind of be able to sit down and- it's So funny, man, like- Read that bit. It was a very, it was a, it was a really hard chapter to write and to work on. And I say it in the book, it was, it's going in the middle of the book, but it was the last chapter that I wrote. Look, the book, so when someone asked me, how did I get there in terms of the book? I got there because of women. When somebody asked me how I get there for that chapter, I got there because I'm blessed enough to have friends, like actual friends, like dear friends, brothers and sisters um, who are black, who have through their grace helped me get there. So women helped me get there in terms of acknowledging my sexism. And my friends have helped me, my black friends have helped me get there in acknowledging my racism and that they never allowed me, I could never just like skirt by. It was never just okay. 
and I was I was challenged and and that's a hard thing I think for a lot of people probably a lot of men and a lot of white men in particular to admit is like we don't get like that's the that's the thing with privilege is you don't just wake up one day and recognize you have it it doesn't that's not how it works it has to be challenged and confronted because it lives in you it makes you um, ignorant and unaware. So if you don't surround yourself with people or women or black folks or gender nonconforming or trans folks, you will never recognize the privilege that you have in each of those intersections. It just won't happen because the world is not set up that way. It's not set up to challenge your, you know, your white supremacist patriarchal views. Um, so so, so that's, so that's the, the short answer to your question is it was because of women that I was even able to get to the point that I'm at, which again, is still very low and early on and recognizing my inherent sexism. Um, and then it was thanks to my, it's thanks to my dear brothers and sisters who are black that it was, I was able to even begin to recognize the privilege in my racism. And as I was writing this book, I recognized towards the end that you cannot separate the two. I cannot write this book, release an entire book on masculinity and undefining it without addressing the other side because they are, they are inextricably bound and connected and enmeshed in each other. My sexism and my racism um, are best friends. Uh, so unfortunately, like, like many white folks, it took, uh, it took the pandemic and Floyd and everything that was happening. I mean, look, I had, I had started that process, but I had never like, I'd never done a deep dive. I had never really looked at it myself. And, and I had been in a lot of situations as I write about in the book with my, like my best friend, right? Like there's no, like, you can't play the best friend as black card. It doesn't work, right? You can't play the like, otherwise, and it's, it's the same thing. I talk about this in, this, in, in the book. You can't, it's just like saying, well, my mom's, my mom's a woman. My sister is a woman. I can't be sexist. It's the same thing. It doesn't. There's. It doesn't work just because you know yeah. black folks doesn't make you not racist. Yeah. Um. And and I had to really. And that was the challenge with this part is, a lot of people have written about it, but you don't often hear people write about the stuff that they've done. And that was uncomfortable because I had to acknowledge and write about experiences, actual firsthand experiences where I have been on the racist side, I have done racist things. And that shit is messy and uncomfortable because we also live in a time and a space where like you keep, there's context collapse on the internet. You can take something and it can be spun into something else. And boom, next thing you know, Justin Baldoni is a racist. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, read the book. There's a reason why I'm sharing it. I'm sharing it because I want you to see your racism. If I can acknowledge mine, then you could acknowledge yours. And I'm not speaking to you, of course. I understand because it's like, it's this understanding um, of just that, what you, the book is not, and what I've, what I've been realizing having released this, this, this beautiful little thing, um, and you might understand this too, is that the book is not about you. Once you explain all the stuff that you've, that you've done in your experience, because this is how, this is how we relate. We are humans. We, we provide our experience so that you can then look to yourself and then, and then relay that back. Unfortunately, they can't have that conversation with you, um, but they can have that conversation with themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why what you've done is so important. And that's why that chapter, I mean, the, the, but the book is powerful, but that chapter really took me because I was like, this is so transformational. I've never seen something like that. Um, and it's important about, for, for someone like you to be able to say that. I'm hearing that it was uh, for the few white men who've read it, you know, it's very early, you know, so I'm so happy you got to read it, but I'm, I'm hearing that's a very confronting chapter for a lot of white folks. And, yeah. but someone said something to me the other day, actually, he was a 50 year old white British guy. Okay. And he said it was the first time that he got it. And I'm like, and, and again, it's just like, okay, all right, well, whatever it takes, but it, but that just shows you how we learn. Yeah. It took me a white guy saying, I'm, I've done really racist things. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person, mm -hmm. but this is the, this is how we start healing. So you got to acknowledge it. You got to come out with it. You got to pop that pimple yep. and he got it. 
And I got to imagine how frustrating it is. And it must be for you, especially as a black man. Yeah. That it's like, wow, I can, my people can scream for centuries. And it takes a white guy writing about it to get to other white people. And unfortunately, it's the same reason why I'm white. It's like the same thing with men in the book. Women have been trying to do the same thing with sexism forever. Yeah. And is that that what Toni Morrison said in that interview when when she said, when she was when she was asked whether she would write white characters and stuff and she was like essentially saying racism is not her problem that's white people's problem and you guys need to have that conversation because we live it um but again and this is and this is why these kind of conversations are so important this is why i do what i do and i'm embarking on what i do is because i want to have more of these conversations and really expand the where they where they're coming from and yeah. especially when it comes to the the masculinity question um i'm always like you know masculinity is so rigid and so kind of confined to a very specific kind of masculinity that we lose sight of what it means to be masculine and masculinities mm-hmm. across that whole spectrum it's such a long varied colorful spectrum we are going through a moment of change and difference we're very specific about language used we're very specific about context and things that are happening and um i think that for me i'm very much about the communal side of stuff yeah i should be able to sit down with somebody who does not look like me and have a conversation about each other's experiences without me taking a front to their experience and I think and that's kind of where we're going. So more conversations like this, more chapters like what you put in there, more, more books, more of these things are to be said and mm. by men, saying it to men, because yeah. then they, they all look and be like, oh my God, you got to say this. And, you know, the women will be rolling their eyes and you're like, yeah. I've been trying to say this for so long. But, you know, that's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's strange. I find it really weird, but it's where we are. The key is how do we get more men to listen or to read? Right. And that's the next yeah. part is how do we make it cool? <laughs> how do we make it? How do we make it like, yeah, you got to read about it. Like mm-hmm. the work itself, that uncomfortable deep dive into yourself is important. And every, everybody should be doing it. How do we make mm-hmm. therapy cool? How do we make uh-huh. therapy like a necessary prerequisite for any relationship or marriage? Uh-huh. There's, a, there's a chapter in the book about my wife and I, and I, and I talk about uh-huh. dating. I get a little harsh on dating. Because I just think it's a joke how we date as a as just around the world and as culturally. Okay. And one of the things I said was, um, "What if the best first date ever was a therapy session?" Wow! Like, what if that became how uncovering? What would what would that be like if all of us just showed up and we were who we are, wounds and trauma and all on our first dates? First of all, how much time would we save? Mm-hmm. And how many? Like how many incredible relationships would be born? Yeah. Because we recognize like, oh, you're messed up. I'm messed up. And that's what I believe at the end of the day marriage is. It's two people taking all their shit, mm-hmm. their loads of trauma, mm-hmm. and they put it in, a, in the front yard and they use that as fertilizer as the foundation for their house, for their relationship to grow. Like that's wow. what it is, man. That's what marriage really is. That's what relationships are. Every single relationship should be rooted in that shared experience of being human, mm-hmm. of our thoughts and our feelings and our and our vulnerability. Like that's that's where the joy is at. That's where the love is at. So now when I talk to most of my guy friends, yeah, there's times when we're like, where we just talk for a second or we shoot the shit. But then there's also space to be like, yo, so how are you doing? And when they drop into that, I know I don't, I can't give a bullshit answer. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh man, I'm struggling. Ooh, yeah. yeah, this happened or like that happened. And when there's space for that, when there's space in my marriage to show up as my full authentic, or as my therapist says, like my dirty, rotten self. Yep. <laughs> man, like how free, freeing is that? That's true liberation right there. Yeah, yeah get tired of wearing the masks, get tired of performing. Um, I was speaking to my dad about that this this weekend and, you know, about dating and about how this kind of, this idea of being somebody that is a particular way when you're on a date. So if you, he was like, oh, you know, if you were on a date, you could like borrow my car. He's got this really nice car. And I was like to him, why would I borrow your car? And then what happens What happens next? What happens next when we go into the next date 
and I don't have the car. Like, what is going to happen? Because you need to use your car. Like, it's your car. And he's like, actually, you've got a point. I'm like, yes, I do, because I'm going to be, I'm an honest person. I'm going to be authentic in the place. If I have to come off the bus to get to the, to get to the date, I'll come off the bus to get to the date. Like, so, um, and it's really In fact, that's better to come off the bus. Then it's like, you. then it's like, oh, they like me for me. There we go. There we go. None of I love that your dad was like, oh, you had a point. I love that that was probably the first time in his life he was like, oh, that's actually a terrible idea. Yeah, it's actually so funny. It's just all the revelations he's getting from reading the book and the conversations we're having. It's just, it's just bizarre. Oh, I don't know if you've had the same so, your dad. Yeah, we started having some interesting conversations because he's so much a big part of my book. Mm. I was going to ask how that's going, you know, yeah. for you, because that's a really, there's such a huge part, you know, a huge part of why I wrote the book is also to heal some of that. And my dad and I have a great relationship, and yet at the same time, I, I find myself stuck and paralyzed in so many ways, in these strange, these strange situations. Like looking at him in the eye, you know, or like why don't I want to feel super close to him, or why don't why don't I want to be super emotional or physical yeah. with my dad? Like what is that? Where are these barriers? That that invisible barrier, that invisible force, is masculinity. Mm-hmm. The thing is that it doesn't allow our us to let our fathers totally in or doesn't allow them to let us fully in after we reach a certain age there was for me it's been been a lot of work because i've been in therapy since 2017 so there was i was a lot of masculine wounds in general that i was healing and fighting and it's only and kind of really navigating my way through so then stepping into this space now having written the book and seeing with him and just observing where he's at (laughs) with the book it's given me that level of understanding and compassion to really be like, okay, so you're here now. This is where you're at. Okay, so now we've got to that bit. How do we get from here to the next bit? When that happens, it happens. Um, and navigating that is weird and strange because, you know, we're so as you've said, like we're socialized to have this distance, and we're, and it's just not it's just not the done thing. Yeah. For some reason, some guys have amazing relationships with their dads, and it's all this closeness and like you know tactile things. But some some guys don't have that, and it's just really interesting, kind of where people come from, and they're really sharing those experiences. And mm. so yeah, I'm just excited, or I'm always excited to kind of just to see where he's at in the book because he's slowly reading it. Um, mm. So you know, by the time he gets to the end, it might be a second book. I mean, like, oh, that's cool. so here's the yeah. next one. And you'd be like, oh, God, just got through this. Hey, but, um, I'm so happy that he's reading it. That's so cool. I do want to ask you before we go about love. And I was going to ask you about your religion. And I can't, I don't know how to pronounce it. How do you Baha'i. say Baha'i? The Baha'i faith, yeah. The Baha'i faith. And um, I wanted to just ask you about that. Baha'i faith is uh, the most recent of the world religions. Mm-hmm. And the core belief is that we are all one. All of us, we are all one, one planet, one people, one cells of a body. Um, and the, the spiritual belief is that God is an unknowable essence. It is not a he or a she. Um, it is a, not a guy in the sky with a beard, like watching over us with a notebook, <laughs> you know, judging our every actions. In fact, in the Baha'i faith, we're told that that we have uh, that we have created an image that we worship in our minds that couldn't be further from the truth. We are finite beings. How the hell could we, as finite beings, comprehend the infinite? Our brains explode. We're not able to. Um, not the most brilliant minds on the planet will be ever able to fathom or comprehend the vastness of the greatness of God. And so that's our essential belief. Like, how do we as human beings comprehend? something that created time that created the the governing laws of the physical realm that created the universe. We don't even understand the universe. We don't even, we can't even begin to understand how big or vast or deep or how far it goes. We're just learning about black holes and the fact that like, we don't even understand those. Uh, So the whole idea is that God created um, mankind out of love and, uh, and from the beginning of time has sent messengers, prophets, teachers, kind of like how the sun sends its rays to the earth. The sun as itself is too hot. 
it's we don't even you know it's what is it 50 billion times bigger than the earth or something crazy it's and i don't know the actual i'm just making that up i don't know the actual science around size of the sun so (laughs) someone's going to correct me i'm sure but the sun is massive compared to the earth and it would (laughs) it would disintegrate the earth if we were an inch closer to it right so just like the sun sends its rays to the earth so that it's the perfect temperature and things can grow. God sends its rays, its messengers, its prophets, its teachers to earth in the form of religion. And when mankind forgets the message and bastardizes the religion and makes it about himself, he sends a new one. And that's called progressive revelation. It's basically we are all, we are all learning the same things. All the religions speak with the same voice. They've come at different times based on our capacity to understand. And that's really the fundamental belief of the Baha'i faith is that we're now in the age of maturity, right? If we were in an elementary school learning, learning about math in first grade, well, that's the first religion. But when you go to eighth grade, you're still learning math, except you need everything you learned in the first seven grades, right? And that's, that's essentially what we, how we look at all the religions. And now we're in the age of maturity. And in the Baha'i faith, we're told that, all right, this is the time when it gets really hard because the purpose of the Baha'i faith was to bring us together as a, as a, as a, as a globe, right? It wasn't to like bring us into tribe or community. It was as a globe It's how do we create world unity? And that's a confronting thing because with the faith came the advent of technology right around the same time in the 1860s. Right. And, um, and so we have to now really confront all of these things uh, on a global scale. And so everything in our faith, everything that we're asked to do, um, is to bring us together as one people. And so part of that is eradicating the isms of the world, um, is standing up and being a, being, a, being a protector to all victims of oppression. It's loving unconditionally despite somebody with a differing belief. It's, um, it's, it's using words as mild as milk, as Abdu'l-Bahá says. It's, uh, it's addressing um, systemic racism in these issues that that are the root cause of disunity. It's, it's not gossiping and backbiting, which is the worst thing we could ever do as human beings because that is the source of disunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's doing, it's, it's being of service, it's being love, it's understanding that um, it's more than just uh, do, do unto others. It's actually preferring for your neighbor what you would prefer for yourself. It's, it's understanding that the highest place that we can ever get is the lowest. Um, and it's infusing those virtues and values into our work because all of us must work because of understanding that capitalism and money is a necessary thing but it's how do we how does that work become a way of a source of healing for the world and a way of service and love and um and so those are the those are the values and the virtues and the qualities by by which i try to practice my my life um and, and imbue into the things that i do I'm a very, you know, I'm a, I'm a baby. I'm, I'm learning. I mess up constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm uh, it doesn't, you don't just, you know, you don't become anything. And then again, like overnight, you're a different person. It's a, it's a journey until the end. In fact, some of the most deepened read scholarly service oriented Baha'is who are at the end of their lives often are the ones that say, pray for me the most because they know that, you know, the, the more pure you have become, the farther the fall. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and this world has been set up in such a way that we have a choice every single day to live in our higher nature or our lower nature. And I think the purpose of religion, the purpose of faith, of all faiths is always to get us to live in the higher nature because in that higher nature, the spiritual realm, that's where joy is found. That's where love is found. That's where, that's where community and connection and empathy and compassion are found. And, uh, and if we can live in that higher nature, we can start to heal not just each other, um, ourselves and the world. And that brings us together. So that's beautiful. Yeah. That's like, and then I could go on for, we could do a whole podcast about that, but um, (laughs) deep, you know, deep, deep writings on life after death and amazing things that I think are just so interesting to, to read about, to learn about. And, and again, I know I never, I don't believe in making people or that I don't believe that people need to be the same religion. I believe that take, take some of the teachings and apply it to your own life, you know? And like, everybody's got to be on a journey. You know, I grew up every day being told that I was going to burn in hell. Okay. Um, and, 
and again, it's like, I just don't believe that that's how God works. One of the, one of the attributes of God is the all compassionate, the all forgiving. And it's like, do you, man, mm-hmm. do you, maybe your beliefs differ from the mind. Maybe your lifestyle is different than mine, but it doesn't mean that I don't, I can't love you, be friends yeah. with you, be in community with you. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that I, I have to pray for your soul. God bless you. I got to pray for you. No, it just means like, I believe in an all loving, all compassionate God that, and I don't have the answers. So like, let's just be in community together and help each other on our journey. One of my best friends is Muslim. He helps me become a better Baha'i and I help him be a better Muslim. And the same thing goes with my Christian friends. That's how this should work. It's definitely how it should work. And we have this, we have this, as you said, this disunity, this disconnect, this judgment, this very human stuff. That is getting in the way of our kind of our innateness, our our, Innate goodness, our, yeah. our our intuition is really blocking things. I mean, I've I'm reading this book called Loyalty, Loyalty to Your Soul right now, and it's by um, Ronald Honick and his wife Mary Honick, and it talks about that. I mean, I'm 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 a very curious man. I'm like I've been. I've read up in Zen Buddhism, like, you know, I grew up Christian and kind of moved away um, from that stuff. And, um, but, I, but I took the core principles with it and I just, and I, and I learn all these other things. So I'm always keen to, to learn new ways and new things and um, read up on the stuff. But in the book, it essentially says a lot of the stuff about, you know, spirituality and where, and the, the ideas and, yeah you know, how we should all kind of be sitting together and having these conversations around the table and being like, you know, being able to share that. So that's beautiful to hear. Um, mm. thank, thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank my you. pleasure. Um, the last thing. Love, time, right? Love. Yeah, because I know time is, I, I could do this all all evening for me here. <laughs> but, um, I know you've got yeah, things to do. Um, too, so as a final note then, what do men need to know about love that they don't know already? And how do we love each other? And how can we do that more? Mm. There's so many things I don't think we know about love. I think the first thing, let's simplify this. The first thing I would say is that is that we have to dispel the myth that love is uh, is easy. I think that I think that love is a reward for us doing the work but it's a reward that doesn't have, um, it's not a reward in the way that we think about it. It's a spiritual reward. It is, um, love should be a magnet. Love should be the thing that draws you into things. Love should be the thing that makes you work hard. Love should be the, you know, in the Baha'i faith, we're told that love is the, is, is the magnetic force bonds the planets and the stars love should be love should be the thing that we wake up with and and uh and is is on our minds and our hearts all day long and but love not not in the way that movies show love but in the way but in the way that it governs our everyday actions and impulses like what is it what does it mean for me to love my wife it means it means that i'm compassionate to her struggles it means that i think about her needs sometimes before i think about my own it means that it means that i am uh slow to anger and quick to listen it means that i am also kind to myself and forgiving to myself in moments where i lose my shit (laughs) um love also looks like justice which is something that I know is hard thing to comprehend. Baha'u'llah says in the Baha'i faith, the most beloved thing in all my sight is justice. So if God loves us so much yet loves and wants us to have justice, what does that look like? So that also love looks like apologizing. It looks like taking accountability. It looks like recognizing when we make mistakes and, and, um, and forgiving ourselves and understanding that it might take time for others to forgive us. Um, Love is also in the small moments, the moments that we don't think about often. Um, love is in the wind and in the rain and in the little moments where my kids wake up and have so much energy and I'm so exhausted and I just want them to go the fuck back to sleep. 
Um, it's in their excitement for a new day because they want to get out there and live and experience it. Love is in anger. Love is in sadness. Um, love is in everything. And more than anything, I think love is in the giving of time and understanding that all of us have a choice to make every single day of what we spend our time on. The fact that we even have time, the fact that we are breathing, it's in every breath. Love is in every breath. It's in every heartbeat. It's in every thought. And we have a choice every single day to find it and to choose it. It's a verb to choose love. We must choose it. I have a tattoo on my arm that says, where there is love, nothing is too much trouble. And there is always time. So long as there is time and that there are seconds ticking and a heart beating, there is an opportunity to find a way to love. And, um, and so what do I want men to know about it? I want men to know that it's everything. That it doesn't make them weak to love. It makes them human beings to love. It doesn't just look like romantic love. It's all kinds of love. Um, and at the end of the day, before we love anybody else or anything else, we have to love ourselves. Because if we don't love ourselves, there's no way you can love anything else. And the only way you can love yourself is to hold space and compassion for yourself and to recognize that you are more than just a physical body, that you are a, that you that you have a soul, that you are a spiritual being having a physical experience. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. This show is produced by Pure Creation Media. If you want exclusive and private content and a way to support the show, head over to steadyhq.com forward slash Alex Holmes and join the supporters who help me keep this show afloat for as little as £6 per month. You can also support the podcast by rating and reviewing the podcast over at Apple Podcasts as the show gets more reviews and more ratings the more the show can grow have a happy week until next time i'll catch you then see you soon